Good morning. From Eagle's Nest, San Marcos, Guatemala. I'm here overlooking the lake from the amazing Shala at Eagle's Nest. I would recommend you tuning into the Eagle's Nest website and having a look at this view. I will um, put a link to the Eagle's Nest website on the description. I'm recording an intro for this amazing episode with Dr. Christopher Ryan, who I've been a, a supporter and a fan of for maybe about four years now. I got I got recommended to listen to his podcast from a friend, a friend in Cairns, and I had a lot of judgments at first, and he supported me out of judgment with 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 his um, mindful, heart filled conversations with amazingly unique people. He's an amazing podcaster. Five hundred episodes in to his podcasting career, nine years in. Um, I don't know what words to put to it, whether I'm a fan or I'm a supporter. or He's like an uncle that I really respect and inspires me. I don't agree with him, his opinions completely, yet I just love him and appreciate his work. Uh, appreciate who he is. And for him to land in San Marcos just over a week ago into Vida, into a bar, and I randomly looked over and there he was. It was a new feeling in my life to let go of all these judgments of anyone that's anyways famous or any judgment of me not needing to meet people I'm really inspired by and this like protection, silly protection and to allow myself to celebrate meeting this man and inviting him to be on my podcast and it happening and now to be able to release it today and just after yesterday I heard him mention this podcast on his podcast in his intro to his latest episode with Tao Roosevelt and um, Anya Katz. I'd recommend you tuning in to Tangentially Speaking Podcast. Um, we'll also put a link to that in the description. Yeah, I do. I do love this man and I love what he shares and I love this conversation and where it went. I had no idea we were going to talk wealth and kingdom and power, yet it resonated a lot and it's just tangentially came up flowed and it was real and it was heart centered and it is and yeah reminder to support the podcast financially on Patreon um, 5 euro 10 euro a month is so supportive um, yeah if that feels like that's something you want this is something you want to support in the world yeah please support financially and if not enjoy the episode either way be present enjoy your heartbeat just letting you guys know that the website for this podcast has been created right now really exciting times and all the episodes will be available on the website and let's see how that grows this organic growth of spin frequency. Life's great right now. I brought a lovely man on a nature quest this morning as a gift for his birthday to watch dawn caress the sky. 
feeling in great spirits going visiting a community today at 9am a place called Haibolito um, it's a project that Sebastian is involved in which will be an episode that will be coming soon so I really want to see the community that they're building so I can share a bit more about it in the intro to the episode I recorded with him a couple of weeks ago and to see if see if I love it and if I do I will be sure to support and share it with you guys. All is flowing, all is well, breathing, enjoying, remembering that the more I look within, then when I look out, it's so much more beautiful. It's a literal mirror. Anyways, Christopher Ryan, Michael Miller mirror, coming now. Enjoy the, enjoy this conversation, guys. Tell your friends. Silence. Heartbeat. Spin frequency. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Yeah, it's amazing. In that moment of silence, there were no dogs barking or chickens crowing or thunder thundering. It's unusual in this neck of the woods. (laughs) Or maybe it's because you've got headphones on. (laughs) <laughs> no, actually, I hear stuff better with the headphones. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Like, I, I hear things other people don't hear when I've got the headphones on. I hear when the fridge comes on and, you know, just stuff. And, like, I hear that dog barking. I don't know if you hear that. So that's why I always wear headphones when I'm recording. So we should specify that we're recording on my gear, but this is your podcast. Yeah, massive upgrade. We've gone from a Tascam 99 euro simple device to this... Oh. Zoom high tech fancy machine that has got all sorts of levels moving as I'm speaking. Yeah. And it's yeah. recording from one ball mic at the top. Yeah. With a hard drive connected to it. And we're sitting in this amazing chalet <laughs> that I didn't even know existed on a path that I've ran and walked a lot of times. Yeah. Well, like so many things here in San Marcos, it's behind a wall. So unless you've, you know, got go through the wall you don't know what's back there it's i think there are so many amazing properties here that it would be fun to just sort of have access to you know like uh in creston this town where i've been living they have a an artist studio tour once a year where people open up their homes and you go like wow i can actually visit this house that i've been looking at for years i want to see what's in there feels like a similar kind of wall with you it's like because we're in this like level of intimacy now your eyes have brightened up so much to to, to me because obviously we've got like boundaries to people that we've just met and so on but like your eyes now have like gone that's the coffee so much bright or or the morning coffee (laughs) yeah yeah it's really nice to see no Anya said she had a good uh a good chat with you yesterday so uh thought well let's try to schedule something before we leave we're leaving in a couple hours so that's why. Hence the early morning podcast. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really conscious not to to push. I really like a podcast to like naturally just spring mm. out of the heart and kind of sit in the the buzz of silence. I think that's a big part of the podcast as well. People get to listen to the suspension, to the silence, and then see what actually arises when you actually don't push. 
you're willing to see. Yeah, that's an interviewing technique <clears throat> that I learned a long time ago. When you uh, are talking with someone and they say something and you sense that there's more to it, but they're not sure whether they want to share it, the sort of instinctive impulse is to say, tell me more about that or, you know, and then what happened or just do something to push them on. But uh, the sort of expert technique is just to stay silent and then they will often take it in a direction you didn't know it was going to go as opposed to responding to your prompt if you just leave the empty space then they fill it it's also a technique that detectives use in interrogations interesting because silence can make people very nervous and they'll say almost anything to fill the silence and then that navigation is important for me is then re-listening to the episodes before I upload them to see like have we gone past the line of a boundary of the person because they've gone so far in that do they actually want to share this much? Mm. So it's been a navigation for me re-listening. I've got 10 episodes in the burner that I need to edit and listen back on. I'm like, things have been said here now that I actually want to edit out or mm. make sure from the person, are they okay with this being shared? <clears throat> right. Because when you have a podcast that is focused upon making friends and creating a space for, them, for people to get out of their mind and into their hearts people often share things that they've maybe never even heard come out of their mouths before because they're such a safe, soft, nice place to be in. Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic with podcasting, I think. Uh, how the presence of a microphone can both stifle conversation and inspire conversation you know, or fuel I've seen it go both ways, for sure. Um, if you were to speak to yourself at um, episode 20, and uh, you were 27 years old, what would you say to him? About podcasting? Yeah. Um, hmm. I guess I would say... Resist the temptation to try to make it something it isn't. And focus as much as you can on letting it be what it is. And I know that sounds trite, um, but for me that's been the <clears throat> sort of the central... Uh, dynamic of podcasting like okay what I started out thinking okay what do I want this to be right do I want this to be like Joe Rogan's podcast or like Radio Lab or like This American Life or what do I want it to be like and then I sort of realized that 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 was the wrong way to think of it, that what I needed to do was just see what it is and then let it be that as much as possible. 
<clears throat> I don't know if that makes sense, but it's like what I like to do in my podcast is to um, just give people space to not only to tell their story in a way that they might not have told it before or even conceived of it before, um, but for them to sort of discover themselves in a way. And the microphone does that, um, partly because I think when people are speaking to a microphone, they are in the presence of a microphone, it focuses the mind in a way, right? Like this is, these words don't just evaporate into the atmosphere. These words are going to be preserved somewhere. And most of the people I have on my podcast are not public people, so they're not accustomed to speaking into eternity in that sense, right? Into the future. And um, so I try, you know, both in terms of like what the podcast is in, in a general sense, but also in a very specific sense in the particular conversation, I try to sort of encourage, but get out of the way and let it flow where it needs to flow. And the episodes that I'm most um, proud of are the ones in which you don't really hear a lot from me, but the person, you can hear the person discovering themselves. That's what I mean, there's one in particular, that, I mean, there's so many now, I've got almost 500, but one that stands out in my memory is this um, auto mechanic named Lodi, who was Pakistani, or is Pakistani, I assume he's still alive, um, but he's probably in his 70s at the time, and this was uh, five, six years ago. Um you know, and, and everything about the episode was really kind of emblematic of what I'm talking about. Because first of all, it happened serendipitously. I was in L.A. and my car, the brakes were squeaking and I was concerned something was wrong with my car. So I, I was in Venice staying at a friend's place and I went on Yelp and was like, OK, find a decent auto mechanic around here. And this guy has good reviews and. People even said, like, you know, Lodi's a character, he's great. And, you know, I thought, okay, let's go to this guy. So I made an appointment, took my car in. It's just a dingy little shop in Venice, California. And so this guy's got my car up on the lift, and I'm in the office. And typical auto mechanic office, you know, catalogs piled up everywhere, auto parts stuff, and calendars on the wall, and just sort of junky. And, um, and there's a photo of this guy, probably 10 or 15 years younger than he was at the time, in a motorcycle jacket, standing next to a sign that said, Welcome to the Arctic Circle. And I said, Lodi, is that you? And he said, yeah. And I said, uh, what's the story there? You're, you're at the Arctic Circle? He said, yeah, I was in Alaska. I said, you rode a motorcycle? He said, yeah. This is the kind of guy he was. He was like one-word answers, right? And I said, well, why did you do that? What, what, was you on a trip? Or what? He said, well, 
when I turned 50, I was depressed because I realized I would never go to the Arctic. And I had seen a movie, a John Wayne movie, when I was a kid in Pakistan about the gold rush in the Yukon, you know. And I had always wanted to go to the Arctic. And then when I turned 50, I was like, fuck, I'm never going to go to the Arctic. And I was depressed. And I said something to my wife, and she said, go, go to the Arctic. So I went. I said, like, by yourself? He said, yeah. So you just got on a motorcycle in L.A. and you rode to northern Alaska. He said, yeah. They said, Lodi, do you know what a podcast is? He said, no. I said, well, it's like a radio show, but it's on the Internet. So people listen on computers and but it's basically a radio show. I, I have one and my audience is really interested in adventures. Would you be willing to you know, talk about this ride up to Alaska and the things you saw and all that. And he sort of paused for a minute and he said, well, if you want to talk about a motorcycle trip, maybe we should talk about when I rode from London to Islamabad in 1968. <laughs> I was like, fuck, are you kidding me, man? London to Pakistan in 1968. Yeah, let's talk about that. So I went in the next morning before he opened the shop at like 6.30 in the morning or something. He met me there. And we were recording. And at the time I used lapel mics. Specifically because I thought that it was less intimidating for people. So there wasn't like a microphone they had to hold or a microphone on a table. You just clip it on and sort of forget about it. Since then I've abandoned that just for sound quality issues. But anyway, we I you know clipped him in and we're sitting there and we're talking and and he's telling the story about growing up. Turns out he grew up in Winston Churchill's house in Pakistan, where Winston Churchill had lived when he was administering India or something. And he's from this very prominent Pakistani family. One of his sisters was like an opera singer or a conductor of orchestras or some shit like that. And he had another sibling who like taught mathematics at Oxford or something. All this high-achieving a very prominent Pakistani family and he was the black sheep of the family and he had just sort of um, gone around the world on tramp steamers, you know, cargo ships and he'd done some mechanical work there and then he got into working on cars and then he spent time in Germany and and his father would like send him money to support him when he was traveling around and and as he was telling the story I realized that it was really the first time he'd ever told his story and that he was kind of shocked that I was excited and amused and appreciative of all these adventures he, he had had because he had just never seen himself as all that interesting a person, you know? And, um, and it was just, this, it was really beautiful to see him seeing himself through my eyes. And, you know, and he was 70, he was in his seventies, which is an age where you want to be able to tell your stories to young people. You know what I mean? That's one of the values of having lived that long is being able to transmit something of value to younger people. And, um, 
Yeah, it was just a really moving experience to watch him come to see himself in those terms and to see how interesting his life was. And there was one moment where he, he was saying something about, um, you know, he he'd like quit this job and was doing something new in some other country. And I said, well, how did you support yourself? Or how did, I think it was when he went to the, like the Mercedes Benz mechanic program or something in Germany. I said, did you work or how, did you have a visa? How did you? And he said, well, you know, my father sent me money to pay for that. And, and, uh, and I said, wow, your father must have been a really good guy, right? Because I'm thinking about like, oh, you know, one sibling is teaching at Oxford. The other sibling is in orchestras and, you know, like all these high achievers. And here's this guy bumming around the world, having adventures, Definitely not the family tradition, you know, but his dad was still willing to like toss some cash so he could, you know, go to school in his 30s and get this. Anyway, I said, you know, your your parents must have been interesting people to support you, even though your life was so different from what they probably envisioned for you. Right. And he just sort of stopped and started to tear up. And he unclipped the mic and he just said, I need to get some water. And he just got up and walked away. And, uh, yeah, I still get choked up thinking about that. So it's, I don't know, it's a long story, but that's what I like is when, you know, the audience can be present as, um, something transformational happens. That's when I feel like I've actually provided value. Yeah, my um, my friend Ian and me podcasted a couple of weeks ago. It ended up being a three and a half hour podcast at midnight up in the forest and we, we had a microdose of um, mushrooms and we got to maybe hour three and he just said to me randomly tell me the song and I was like what do you mean tell me the song <laughs> he's like don't think just tell me the song and I said okay I'm gonna feel in and it was remember me and he said okay we'll load it up on the on the phone, on the laptop or whatever, and we'll, let's speak into it. And Remember Me was a song that was played at my dad's funeral back in 2012. And um, so he's like, can you remember hearing the song at the funeral? I said, no, not really. And he said, why? And, I sp and he said, were, were you feeling emotional? I was like, no, I don't feel like I was feeling anything. Um, I feel like I was just protecting myself from this experience of this funeral of this person that I never actually spent any time with that I met for 10 minutes of my whole life mm. and that I was standing at this funeral of where this mu famous musician was singing this so his song Remember Me about this man in this casket that was that looked like me that I just seen at the funeral home the night before that I was didn't know what I was feeling I was kind of feeling excited that he was dead in this fucked up weird way because mm. fear and excitement is very similar um 
So he's like, okay, it sounds like you're ready to hear the song now. And I listened to the song. And every word of the song was a message from him specifically for me to hear. Mm. Every word was everything that I ever wanted to hear from a man to say to me. The words of like, just put out your hand and you'll always have someone to meet you. And I exploded with tears. And the feeling of contentment and fulfillment and that feeling that I always desired from to come home at night time and feel like I didn't have to go anywhere again didn't have to keep travelling in my camper van didn't feel like I had to keep adventuring keep seeking looking that I had this feeling where my dad was telling me everything's okay you can go to bed now there's no more work to be done no more protecting your mom's safe the house is safe home is safe there's nothing to do and that song gave me all of that and that came from in the podcast my friend was saying to me mm. what is the song mm. and him knowing that I needed to hear that and that feeling of brotherhood and that feeling of friendship where your brother's willing to whip out his sword of truth and like show it to you um, and a whole redefinition of what that sword of truth means um, that going from the whole warring fighting sword of truth to having your friend whip out something that I could react and fight back with because it's so raw but to actually transform my entire existence by sharing that with me um, that opened up a whole new level of podcasting to me. I still haven't released that episode because it's three and a half hours long um, and I don't know what to do with it because it's so... It, I'd say I could, make, I could make four episodes out of it because there's so much information and I don't even know if it can even be received because it's so raw and it's so deep and we're, we are tripping. Our whole... Our whole... Um, our whole um, image was just changing as we were speaking to each other, completely shape-shifting. Like, our whole facade and guise was just disappearing. We are just becoming our, our, our electromagnetic selves. I'm sure that was a microdose. Um, yeah, tiny. Like, well, I, I experienced that just looking at you right now. I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm a bit on the spectrum. I feel I've never been told I am, but I'm, yeah. that's, that's what I see. Right. I, I don't see just a flat. Right. It's like what me and... Um, and you were speaking about in we say call it the lake where in more original languages they'd call it the movement of water or mm. so I feel I in a lot of ways my mind doesn't work with that prison of stillness I mm. my mind works in a everything's moving for me right and I've never taken DMT or I've never taken a, a large dose of acid I've never taken I've never gone on the hero's journey mm. Like everyone talks about the abyss or the the falling into eternity or the electromagnetic breakup of reality, all of this. I've never gone there with a drug. Mm-hmm. Yet I've had experiences just in my in very open heart states of feeling sitting across from my mom and her becoming tiny and me becoming massive and the whole room becoming tiny and the whole room just like shape shifting on itself. Mm-hmm. In those moments of intimacy with people that I really love having these raw feelings of like the whole reality shifting where on the podcast people tell me about these experiences when they take large experiences of acid or ayahuasca or any of these things and when I hear them I get this resonance and I'm like I remember that and a part of me I think is still a bit afraid of going into that with a large amount of drugs I've never taken ayahuasca Mm -hmm. yet I work as a wellness staff member in a ayahuasca integration centre so 
and have all these people coming after ayahuasca, radiant and light, and asking me questions about ayahuasca, and I'm like, I've got no idea. Mm. I'm still too afraid to take it. <laughs> and I'm living on a land that pretty much everyone, tourists that's come here, is coming, like, a lot of them are coming for ayahuasca mm. here in San Marcos. Yeah. And they've taken it numerous times. And I'm still like, I don't feel safe. I haven't met a practitioner or a, a space that I'm like, I feel safe. I went to a grandfather ceremony, I think is it Chipotle or... Do you know the medicine? It's called the grandfather plant. It's from Peru. San Pedro? It's similar to that, but it's another one. Mm. Anyways, it might come to us. And I sat in a circle of men, and he was serving the, the medicine. And I was sitting there, and I was like, fuck no, fuck no. And all these beautiful men, all, all kind of men that you know by them that, well they're explaining it they all have communities they all have land they're all in very good shape they're very meditative they they're they're to look and feel by really beautiful gentlemen that you feel safe around amazing men really inspired by, by being around this circle of eight men and I was like no I'm not taking this medicine so I wrote in the note I was like dear plant medicine dear group of men I'm not receiving this medicine today um, love Michael and I went up and knelt like everyone else was to take the drink and I just gave the piece of paper. I was like, how do I now not interrupt this group of men right. that are in this safe space? They're about to go on this alchemical <clears throat> journey into the forest all day. Mm. I don't want to be like the rebellion. Fuck you guys. I feel unsafe. That means that all of you guys are unsafe. This is mm. fucked up. Blah, blah, blah. That, that, that's not what I was doing. I just want, needed to honor my instinct. And that could have been fear. That could have been... Me, me afraid of this experience and projecting that this was whatever I wasn't going into that I just didn't feel good about this and I left <laughs> and I got my backpack on I suppose it's just me the, the little Michael in school that wasn't allowed leave when he felt like he could and I felt prisoned and then I was told go to the room and I was put in a dark room by myself and then the whole room would start like fucking shifting and orbing around me me and the the bold room or detention room or whatever and the whole room would start like orbing around me and then the teacher would come in and he'd be like a little alien and I'm there fucking tripping balls like not even knowing what's going on like how did this go from me chewing chewing gum in the room and being told not to to now being in this room and everything's shape shifting reality's falling apart on me so I got my backpack on at, at this ceremony and I left and I ran to Sununa we're in San Marcos now. It's about three kilometers. And I ran. And I was like, fuck this. I was like, I know I'm in a place where I'm a wellness staff member where people have maybe have an idea that I'm this, that, or whatever. But I'm not this open-hearted, vulnerable Michael because of these medicines. I'm, I'm this from having the courage and willingness to step out of rooms when I'm like, this is fucked up. I, this does not feel good. Like, being in school and pretending to write. Like, I focused my whole time on making the teacher think that I was writing. And it's, like, pretending. Like, my whole life was just, like, rebelling against any of these... What I thought... I, it wasn't a thought. It was just a feeling. I was like, no. And I ran to Sununa. This was about two weeks ago. And I stopped at the lake. And I looked at the lake. And I could see the sun shining down on the water. And all of these flickers of light. And it all started to become mandalas. Like the whole lake just started, like just started to fall into like a mandalic, light agua 
experience just fractaling and this could be just my own just like ego trip but it, that that felt for me like the elements or nature telling me like well done for like honoring your your gut or your feeling here's a here's here's a gift here's here's some visuals and what, and, and you didn't take the medicine right <clears throat> what feeling brought you into that room though i invited jai the um, one of the co-owners of the yoga forest to a nature quest. I bring people on a nature quest around the forest. Yeah. He he didn't. I messaged him the day before, um, to see are you coming. He didn't reply, so I just messaged say we're cancelling because I haven't heard back from you. He messaged me back the next day. I'm so sorry. I've been so busy. Um, I'm having this um, nature walk in two weeks. You're invited. It's a men's walk. I do them every couple of months. We'll have some medicine. It'll be a lovely walk got the whatsapp message bring your wet gear blah 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 i was expecting like a i don't know like a, a medicine that was like i don't know like a really light one like i don't know like cacao oh, or, okay. or coffee or like do you know what i mean i land here and i'm like in this fucking circle of this like hero's journey medicine i'm like how did this go from me bringing this guy in a nature walk to, right. to this fucking i'm like this this gone too fast for me right i i took uh uh, half uh, uh, one gram of mushrooms two weeks before and I hadn't taken mushrooms for two years before that that was massive for me I had a massive purge I was puking I was shitting at the same time in Hobbitonango in the Shire with my brothers like them holding my hair back while I'm purging I'm like releasing layers of myself and now two weeks later yeah. this I'm like no it's too fast yeah good chill out reality like it's it's not a race like it's um, and I feel like I'm surrounded by people who are medicine in themselves for everything everything's medicine and i'm like yeah life's a lot more like i'm already in a trippy transcendental land just drinking a coffee with someone that i'm inspired by i don't need all of these medicines to feel light and clarified <clears throat> and feel like right. i have like blood running through my veins i feel that that's my natural state of being i don't feel i've been hit as hard with indoctrination and as um disconnection as other people i had a mother that like constantly told me just go to school and get the grades but you don't need to invest in it mm. just do whatever is needed to please these people and get out of there right. get the cert and you can travel the world do what you want you're free right so she's done very good with the whole dad thing of giving me the meta view of like right. you're free just feed feed them what they need and you're free <laughs> so yeah i've been i've always been a a, a rebellion and now i'm in a a town of medicine, you know what I mean? I do. That, yeah. That's that been a thing for me. I, I did a lot of psychedelics when I was young. And I sort of, you know, worked in that world. Um, I worked with different organizations that were trying to you know, get them legalized and scientific uh, validation for the use of psychedelics in clinical settings and, and research and all that. And... Um, and I sort of accidentally became kind of famous in this world of psychedelics. Like I'm in seven weeks, I'm going to Vegas to speak at a psychedelics conference, you know, and they're like flying me up and paying me all this money. And, uh, but I don't really use psychedelics anymore. And it's an interesting conflict because you know, I'm around people all the time who are like, hey, man, let's go take a, 
you know, a massive dose of this or that, or, you know, let's go down to Peru and do this. And, and I'm like, yeah, I don't, it's a strange thing because I've, you know, uh, I think it was Aldous Huxley who said, when you get the message, hang up the phone. And I feel like I um, got the message or many messages with psychedelics. And I got to a point in my life where I started to feel that continuing to use them was disrespectful. Um, and I backed away and uh, I can't remember the last time I used psychedelics, but um, it's a, it's a strange thing because I'm in a similar place to where you are in the sense that I see a lot of people who are approaching them in a very, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but this is how it looks to me in a very kind of consumerist way. Like more is better, right? Um, you know, if if tripping once is great, tripping 20 times in a month is going to be better. You know, people bragging about how many times they've taken ayahuasca. It, it becomes this sort of performative, competitive, it becomes contaminated with the ego and the consumerist mentality that has contaminated almost everything else. And it bums me out because, fuck, I spent a lot of time and energy working to try to bring these substances closer to mainstream society. And now that we've succeeded, I'm starting to regret it a little bit. I mean, not the legal thing. I, I, nobody should ever be in prison for using a plant to expand their consciousness. And so I certainly don't regret any of the legalization, but the commercialization of these experiences makes me uncomfortable. And so a lot of these places that have popped up, like San Marcos and other places that are, you know, all inclusive, $4,000, you know, fly down and have your miracle experience. And, um, yeah, those sort of people are wis you know measuring wisdom in in grams and and microdoses and i'm not quite sure how to deal with that well i find myself in this line of um seeing the inception and seeing where i work well work um, <clears throat> where, where where i live where there are intentions of a helicopter pad at the top of this mountain for jim carrey and jack black and the boys to fly in and maybe pay their, their 20 grand mm. experience for the superior suite and to come have their trip and to come have a nature quest with Irish Michael. You know, you, you know what I mean? That, that, that kind of happening. And observing the, the, my ego part of that and then observing maybe just something really miraculous at play. Maybe there is something genius in letting go of these illusions of that it's wrong that you would receive 20,000 into this dollars of this into this third world country and that automatically is going to go into someone's bank account here and that's going to end up spreading across this town which will obviously bring up civilization more and more and more 
like the uncivilizedness is going to move and move and move. So that place is owned by local people? It's owned by Australian people. So why isn't that money going to Australia? Because their house is about two meters, uh, about 20 meters from here. Literally, we're so close to it. That's the ayahuasca center. The yoga forest is the yoga forest. This is where people go after their, tr- their ayahuasca ceremony and stay for a couple of days. Right. So that 20 grand coming in from these people, it's, it's, it's already rolling because one of the co-creators is a music producer and he's, he had someone, he was talking on his podcast, a multi-Grammy award winning person. So you can see this wave is coming in. You're here. You've got a connection to this kind of world where you don't fully go into it, but you're connected to a lot of rich, powerful people. I'm just witnessing this wave coming in. Yeah. And it, this place is becoming civilized. It's happened already. It's, it's more and more. So in one way, history is replaying itself. And it's clear. And I, I get into fear sometimes. And I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I was in Ireland a year and a half ago, working on ways to be sustainable, g- growing my food, not driving the van too very far, not using too much diesel, like, really tuning into nature, like the water coming from the well, from the ground. And I flew here on a whim of my heart three months ago and I'm in this place where it's like yes I'm letting go of like I have to be so strict with myself for nature to be okay I don't need to protect her and make sure no one touches her and all of this so I'm letting go of a lot of fears over my idea of what nature is yet I'm in the complete opposite now of in a place where it's just anyone with enough money can come here and just buy the land and do whatever the fuck they want and on some level, I'm seeing how people are connecting in some way that this version of reality, the fear-based paradigm, is fucked already. Maybe it's done. Like, there's a big letting go there. Maybe that is fucked. Maybe going into the abyss of things is realizing that it is fucked and we're going to move into another version of reality that is there already and that we're remembering and it's there. And it's just tuning into that. So yeah, I'm weaving in and out of these two realities where I'm like, fuck this, what am I doing? Get back to basics again. And then the next moment, I'm buying a waistcoat that's a thousand casales that's made by indigenous people and it feels amazing. And I'm like, are these slaves that are making this waistcoat or is is this beautiful art that's been weaved into this? So it's like, both are happening at once, that duality. And then I feel like I pierce through it and I feel this, raw connection of everything and it's beautiful mm. and the weaving is happening and then I can pop out of it again and I get into fear and I'm like whoa I'm another fucking rising king a young king rising up with his beautiful queen and my slaves and I can see this happening I can watch myself becoming a king I have the land that my dad left me after he hung himself from being a fucking king by himself that wouldn't give any money to my mom or me to support us yet he was there by himself in his manor and land by himself, Hmm. whatever way it was, and he ended up hanging himself in 2012. So I've got this gift of of power and land and abundance. I'm custodian to two forests, one that I've planted, one that my granddad planted, and I have this power, and I have this, at the same time, connection to nature, because I keep letting go of the power to make beautiful moves, make philanthropist moves, to 
like any any money that comes in or any power I have, I'm doing my best to give it away and spread it out. And if anything, the land in Ireland that we have is to like create a co-trust. So I never at the point where I'm going to make a massive ego decision when I'm in that closed off state. Because I get into those closed states where I'm like, give me that fucking power. This is too, this is too scary. I want that power back. So for me, it's like I'm in the moment where I'm like, how do I create coked co-trust with people so we can co-share these experiences? Because right now, I'm the person that makes the decisions on the land in Ireland. Right now, Jai and Haley, they're the ones that make the decisions up in the yoga forest. So how do we make decisions to like spread that out with people we really trust? People that we trust that no matter what, they're going to come back to their heart. And that's, that's where... Hard. Yeah, <clears throat> it's hard, but I, it must be possible. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I think, you know, trusting people at that level is, is really complicated. I, there's a guy in Wales. Um, oh, shit, what's his name? He's, uh, he, had a, he had a show for years called Tribe. It was on the BBC um, oh shit I forget his name right now he's an awesome dude I, I had him on the podcast I love his show he he went around the world uh, just him and a cameraman and they would go to very very remote places and spend a month with uh, mostly hunter-gatherer people um, some horticulturalists but like they'd go you know, to upper Amazon and, and go back to a, a tribe that had had very little contact with the West. And this guy would just live with them and eat what they ate and, and participate in their ceremonies and go hunting with them. And um, awesome dude, beautiful guy. Uh, and he really, like, he traveled the way <clears throat> one should travel, like with very minimalist and with humor and kindness and generosity. Anyway, he's, he's a wonderful person. People are listening to this frustrated. I can't remember his name. Uh, just look him, Google him tribe BBC. And then it was bought by the national geographic channel and they called it going tribal, you know, totally Americanized it. Um, anyway, he and I were talking and he took his money from the TV show that probably ran for, seven or eight seasons and he bought a big piece of land in Wales and was building a big house and he wanted to share it with his friends and I said well how are you going to do that he said well you know we're uh, I, I already own the land and the house and all this and put a bunch of money into a, an account that we'll use to build things and um and I'm just gonna like uh you know, put it into a mutual kind of everyone owns it together. And I was like, mm, are you sure you want to do that? Like, I know that feels like the right thing to do, but in my experience, that turns into a mess because when consensus is required to make a decision, decisions don't get made. All you need is one person to change their minds or to have a different agenda or to go through a, a, a period in their life where their values change. And now you're fucked 
because now nothing can happen because that person decides they don't want to do it that way. And, you know, someone needs to be in charge. And I know this sounds uh, counterintuitive to people who've read my books and, you know, seen my commentaries on hunter-gatherer politics. But the thing is, hunter-gatherers don't have anything. They don't own anything and they don't exist in an ownership world. We do. So, you know, for a time I was I was looking at the possibility of buying a bunch of land and setting up a community. And one of the things we thought about was like, okay, but how are we going to do this? How are we going to deal with eventualities? You know, because I have a, a core group of friends who I trust very, very much. But what if they get divorced? Then whose rights? And, and she has a boyfriend who she wants to move on to the land with us. And we don't really like him very much. We're not comfortable with him. How do we handle that? You know, how do we handle someone who wants to pass on their share or their house to their kid? Um, but the kid doesn't really have the same values that we have. How do we handle that? You know, there's so many. Ultimately, my feeling was if I was going to put up the money for this and organize it, I would have to have the final say. And I that may just be an ego thing, but I think it's because... Um, I feel like someone needs to be, someone needs to have the final say. And otherwise, shit just dissolves into chaos. And I've, I've seen it over and over and over again in these kind of communities that start with really good intentions and a core group of people who all share a certain set of values, but that dissipates over time. So... I don't know what what the hell was I responding to there. Your your thing about the land yeah, about, and about co-trusting and yeah, just I, kind of witnessing kind of stages where I get into like my own process. Right. And I get into fear and then make fearful decisions. But if I had a group decision, there's bound yeah. to be a couple of people in the group that are in their heart and that would remind me back to that. Right. Yeah. But the th oh, what I was going to say is that trusting people at that profound level is. Um, an imposition on them, I think. Because what we're saying is, I'm trusting that you will never change and that our relationship will never change from what it is right now, where we can look in each other's eyes and know that we believe the same things. That's not how life is. People do change. Relationships change. Stuff happens. Maybe it's electrochemical stuff in the brain. Maybe it's experiences. Maybe it's love comes. Maybe it's someone dies. All sorts of shit happens. And and so I, I feel like it's a very... Um, it's one of those things that sounds great and sounds generous, but in reality can be the opposite of that. Because if you're in a position through, and I don't know your story, but it sounds like through a series of random, strange coincidences in the past, before you were even born, somehow you're in a position now where you have stewardship of this land. 
to what extent is your wanting to share that responsibility actually an attempt to evade responsibility, right? And instead of trying to bring other people in to share your power, maybe your journey is to be so self-reflective and brutally honest with yourself that you mature to a point where you can exercise that power wisely rather than surrendering it. And I, and you're tuning into something that's like, I think you spoke about this before, of like people that inherit things normally just blast the whole money away. Or what was your other, I don't know what was the other thing you said, but maybe you can just speak into it now. What do people normally do when they inherit things? What's the standard? Yeah, well, they don't, they don't understand the value of it. Um, but it sounds like you do because you were separated from it until relatively recently. Um, and yeah, there's a sense of entitlement around it, which obviously <clears throat> it feels to me, and, and, and this is all none of my business, but it it's, feels like you are struggling because you find yourself in, in possession, and that's air quotes, of something that you didn't earn. And so you're resisting uh, having any sense of entitlement or um, that you deserve anything or, you know, that kind of thing. And I think that's really healthy because it's an illusion that anyone can own land, right? I mean, that's just a joke. You'll be dead and that land will still be there. So this idea that you can own a piece of earth, you know, like the American Indian said, what, are you going to buy a piece of the sky too? Like, what are you talking about? You don't own the river, the river flows. It's crazy. So the whole concept of owning land is absolutely insane. But you're in a position where you can determine what happens on that land. And so you have a responsibility and you are in a unique position of having, you know, your perception of the earth is not uh, something to be exploited and used to make money and, you know, whatever. So you're in this very sort of special, it's like you're an accidental king in a way of that land, right? Like you didn't expect to be there. You didn't, you weren't raised in the world of people who just expect things to come to them. And, and, you know, you weren't trained to into the ignorance of people who generally end up in that position. And that's why my perception is so radical from my uncles and aunties who right. pretty much zero contact with. Right. They've been trained. They were raised. Anya and I are watching The Crown on Netflix the last couple of nights. And you can just see how, you know, these people raised in these exalted, high-class societies, they are trained to be cold and calculating and to accept their, uh, you know, class status and their privilege as their birthright. Right. Because otherwise it's very difficult emotionally to be in the position that you're in where you 
haven't closed your heart and yet you're in this position. I wrote about this in my second book in Civilized to Death. It was I wrote about I was writing about how how wealth is corrosive to the wealthy. And it's something that we never really talk about. We only talk about how income and wealth disparity hurts the poor. But we don't talk about how it hurts the rich. And, you know, I, I cited all this research that shows how, you know, living in a society with wealth disparity is psychologically painful and, you know, wealthy people develop various types of scar tissue, you know, sort of psychological scar tissue and feel separate from people and isolated and suspicious because everyone's trying to like, you know, get them to invest in their business or loan me some money or everybody's got an agenda. And and um, I, I was writing about my own experience with it. The first, you know, I, I was raised in a family, not wealthy, but plenty of money, swimming pool and, you know, a few cars. And, you know, like I always had whatever I wanted as a kid growing up. And um, but I never thought of myself as wealthy or anything. And uh, then I went to India in 1986 or so. And, um, you know, I'd saved up some money and this job and I flew to India and I was sitting in a restaurant in Delhi. One of the first nights I was there and I sat at a table outside sort of on the terrace and my food came and immediately they were like half a dozen little kids standing you know, just next to my table, staring at my food. And I had this, I'd been living in Manhattan for a few years. So I was sort of accustomed to poverty and, you know, stepping over the the drunk sleeping guy on the sidewalk or the schizophrenic, you know, person in the subway or whatever. I, I sort of developed the way to sort of deal with that psychologically. But these were little kids and they weren't, you know, I couldn't say like, oh, you're, you know, you're an alcoholic. That's your problem. You know, there are plenty of social services. Go, you know, get some counseling. You know, like I couldn't separate myself from what was going on. And <clears throat> they were just, they weren't even looking at me. They were looking at the food. And so I bought a bunch of samosas and then I was giving the samosas and they were all gone in, in no time. And they were now they're like 30 people and they've all got their hands out and they're all saying, oh, please, I'm hungry. And I, I suddenly I felt like a millionaire. I felt like but in all the bad ways, I felt like I see the problem and I see how I could address it in an immediate sense. But the problem wouldn't go away. And then I would have nothing. And maybe that's what Jesus would do. It's not what I did, right? I couldn't do that because then I won't have money to continue my trip through India and to fly to the next place and to, you know, continue my my thing. Um, but it was a very stark lesson in how bad it feels, and how much of, of a burden it can be um, to be in a position where you have access to far more resources than a lot of the people around you. It can be very isolating and difficult. And I feel like 
you know, we don't talk about that enough. We don't talk about, you know, Jim Carrey is an interesting example. There's a guy who worked really hard to be famous and wealthy. And then he got there and he's like, this sucks. Fuck this. I hate this. And he's very articulate about it. And uh, I admire him for that. But I think that is the experience of just about everybody. Just about everybody who gets to the top of that mountain looks around and says, fuck, this is not and, what I thought it would be. And I keep, I, I feel like I've been replaying that in my little <clears throat> micro. I'm very, I know I'm very young, I'm 27. Yet I hit a point when I'm in Australia after traveling for four years and I hit the point of where I was like, I've got plenty of money in my bank. I've got plenty of cryptocurrency. I feel like I'm, I can, if I'm attracted to a woman, I, I can connect with her I can go anywhere I want I do anything all of these things like there's nothing out of my I'm not getting helicopters or anything but in my my world everything is available to me and I was feeling really empty like really there's no rev in my engine like my fire didn't have a reason to even I could be at two percent and everything was just flying Mm. and I nearly feel like I went into complete destruction mode then and nearly went into modes of like feeling suicidal but like I was never going to kill myself like never like but having moments where I went into the water and I was like I'm going in here to kill myself and I nearly felt metaphorical more than yeah I, I was I, I came out of there a different person right and I feel like I've been rising since to allow myself into pleasures again and into experience and allow myself to be in a nice room podcasting with technology where I've let go of the judgment of it again to finally allow it to... That there must be something beautiful happening to this recording getting out there and awareness being shared and people getting to experience the vibration of open-heartedness and transformation and all of these things. So I'm, I'm building again. Yet there is this looming part of me is like, are you just going to end up just throwing it all the way again and going up to the mountain and like, was I just fucking back in the race again? Mm. Have I just kidded myself again? Um, and it, 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 because it, that cycle is actually happening. That loop is happening. But on a whole other layer, something else is happening. And I'm tuning in and out of these all of the time. And that's what's difficult because because I'm living from my heart. I'll give you an example. I have tenants living, a young family living in my house, my dad's house, the family home of his parents. They moved in in 2014. They have no kids. Now they have two kids. Beautiful little family. He's a builder. She's a teacher. Two lovely kids. One of them has special needs. Love them. I got an idea in my head that I was going rewilding the land. No more chemicals. No more manure. Animals off. Agriculture is fucked. I'd watched a lot of documentaries. I'd read a lot of books. And I'm like, I'm feeding something that's the whole fucking problem. And I'm getting five, ten grand for from the government to to pay me to be part of this am I willing to let go of that that money and I said yes okay we'll remove agriculture gently removing the farmer who had been there minding the land for the four years while I travel the world like doing that slowly he was like I need the shed for one more winter I said okay brilliant please have another shed ready for the next time I just don't support this anymore and then I realised the people in the house, they're using chemicals in their head and shoulder shampoos. Everything they do is part of this system of buying from Aldi and Little, these cheap supermarkets, 
Like, all of this is going through the water systems that's going into the well that we drink from and we wash our clothes from and all of this. So we're living in this community down here where we're living this more purity way. And yet their whole life is contradicting all of our actions. And I have the power to evict them. And then I'm like, fuck, I'm now a landlord. This is like, <laughs> I'm like looking in the mirror and I'm like, who the fuck is this dude? Like this lord. I, yeah, coming what, so, what problem is that going to solve? But, but I, 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 into my little navigation, so I told them, I, I, I had a meeting with them and I asked, would you be willing to bring some awareness to these products you're purchasing and all this? And this was all foreign to them. They're like, all they're hearing is, are you going evicting us? Like, that's all they're, because they're not even in their power to get a mortgage. The Irish government won't give them a mortgage to build a house. I had a meeting with him and I was like, you're a builder and you're a teacher and you're paying me money to rent my house. There's something fucked up going on here. I'm like, how can I support you to build your house mm. so you don't pay me rent? I'm like, I was explaining the ludicrousy going through my body and his shoulders were creaking like this and he's like, he's like, I suppose I don't believe that I can build my own house since the, the, the property market drop and the recession we went through in 2008 it's like the Irish people believe that they couldn't get mortgages anymore that they didn't believe so the rental markets in Ireland have gone the amount of money they pay Mm. so I was like how can I support you to start building that house because I don't want to receive this money from me anymore it doesn't feel feels fucked up you're a builder I just built a, a, a wooden cabin in one summer as a group as a community we raised the funds on Facebook and now we've got a house and you're paying me 600 a month for this concrete fucking house that you're in. And he was kind of getting me, but fear was like rippling him. So remembering I'm in a whole other reality to him. Like theirs is very simple. Day to day, money comes in, their kids are fed and like doing my best not to shake their ship. Like and have empathy for that yet. Do my best to shift this in another direction. So I said, you have a, they didn't want to change their whole chemical Use. They didn't want to change their toothpaste, their products, any of these things. They were just like, hmm. So I was like, maybe you have a full year to work out a new place to rent or whatever if you're not willing to move a little bit towards something different. Because all this water is going into the well and then we're drinking it, not into the well, but into the land. Mm-hmm. And we're rewilding all the land so all those trees can grow up, all the saplings. Ireland used to be a rainforest to allow the whatever the land wants to be to grow. That was my idea. That's my vision. It is. It's happening right now. And so that decision was made. They were moving out in a year. And they were like happy that they had a year to move. I wasn't like, get out now. The rewilding has begun. I was being as gentle as I could. And I sat with it. I had a couple of conversations with my mom. My mom is always my... We, we grew up in a council estate. Single mom, only child. I'm. That's where I. They're my roots. Right. You know what I mean. Like not having enough money on Wednesday to get milk, and her going into my piggy bank to to get milk. I always had loads of money in my piggy bank, but as a mom child, we were in a lower level of society. Maybe not lower, but just above. Um. And I had a couple of conversations with a few open-hearted people, like my mom, who always brings me back to reality, and a couple others. And I was like, this is fucked. Let's flip around this completely. What can I do to support this young family? Instead of rippling it up from underneath them with this idea of a few fucking chemicals. What about their, their fucking family? 
what about there's, there's something way more this is very heady what's going on here very visionary but like very still like big ideas and I said to them okay let's flip this up I would love for you to bring some awareness to the products you use but I am not going to be controlling <laughs> how you run your family you're the father you're the mom go at your pace your life I'm different what boundaries do you need to protect you from our community as we grow because I do not expect ye to move how we move. So what walls do you need? What fences do you need? What access of space do you need? Do you need a five-year contract or a 10-year contract to make sure that when I get a fucking idea in my head that I'm not going to just make ye have to leave? I was like, you tell me what ye want. I'm in a very open-hearted space. Tell me what ye need. And they were so shocked. They were like, whoa, we've got some freedom here we've got some liberation we've got some power so they were like in november when the contract ends it's actually this november coming they're going to come back to me with what they want mm. to support them so i flip the whole thing around on itself but i've probably needed to go into my head into the visionary to see what the king's decisions were made often forgetting like in ireland when <laughs> when the kings and lords and their manners they were like we need food the potatoes have been blighted. We need to get all of these people out of their houses and we need to bring livestock in so we can eat these cows and have crops. And all these Irish people were sent to America because these kings in the manors were like, got afraid of lack happening and they were like, fuck, our resources are lowering. These people aren't giving us what we need. We need meat. We don't need people. We need cows. So they cut down the forests. They put money on the wolf's heads and to get them killed, to take out the wolves because the wolves would kill the livestock. The bears left, the, the wolves left, and the whole wild animal race ends up being gone. Flat pastures, forests cut down. Agriculture started to escalate. These were the king's, fearful king's decisions. Mm. Because they were afraid of their losing their perfect reality. So m me bringing my awareness into this in my micro little 40 acres of this history that has happened and my willingness to go in there and see it and walk the land and listen and see and see the opinions of people around me and then willingness to travel the world and see what third world countries like here, what their awarenesses are like. Coming back and finding the balance of not making too radical decisions, integrating them and maybe making little organic steps that actually have an impact that are opening instead of closing and making sure my mortality that I end up 80 years old on my table still having all everything I want around me but more making decisions that are going to keep surprising me and surprising me with like whoa that has come back to like like things that are like miraculous instead of like fearful protection where making sure that I have a whatever it is do you feel what I'm saying mm -hmm. Like, stepping out of that control and more going into, like, making decisions that are letting go. And maybe inspire other people who have power and wealth that may, are listening to this podcast and other people. Maybe to, like, maybe looking at a little bit more of a magical way of approaching our power. Mm. Yeah, power and wealth are heavy. It's, it's, a, it's a heavy thing. Yeah. I don't know. I've walked away from from wealth and 
on life. I mean, I some some forms of wealth. I had when I was your age. You said you're 27, right? <clears throat> when I was 27, I was working in New York City for this very wealthy guy. And we became friends and he wanted me to stay and start businesses and do all the stuff. And I wanted to go and travel around the world. And um, every time I would say to him, you know, I'm feeling like maybe it's time for me to go. And he'd give me more money and give me a free apartment and give me cars and stuff. And um, finally one night we were having dinner and I was like, listen, you know, I, this has been great. But I never intended to work in business. I, I met him by chance. I've told this story many times on my own podcast. Um, but basically, <clears throat> he had inherited a bunch of real estate in Manhattan. Uh, I don't know how well you know Manhattan. Yeah. Well, there's one block, 47th Street, between 5th and 6th Avenue in Midtown. And that's where 80% of the diamonds sold in the United States physically move through that block. It's all Orthodox Jews and they're uh, diamond dealers and gemstone cutters and gold dealers and it's called the Diamond District. And he had inherited these buildings there and so I found myself working there and managing these buildings. And um, Anyway, the point is when I was 27 and I was like, I'd been there a couple of years and I, I was like, okay, I gotta go, you know, I wanna go to India, I wanna go have that experience I told you about in the restaurant. And I, I just gotta go. And he said, listen, Chris, he said, you're, what, 27? He said, by the time you're 30, you'll have a net worth of a million dollars. I'll guarantee it. And if you don't have a million dollars in the bank, I'll write you a check for whatever's missing. Stay here for three years, and then you can go travel. And you'll have a million dollars in the bank. And he was a good guy, too. He wasn't, <clears throat> there was no bad intention. He wasn't trying to fuck me up. He just wanted me to stay because he was lonely. He was a lonely rich dude. And and I realized, ironically, in the years since I thought about it later, I realized that my value to him, the reason he wanted me to stay so badly, was that I was probably the only person in his life who wasn't motivated by money. So the irony was he was offering me a whole bunch of money because he wanted someone around who wasn't interested in money. It was it was an interesting time. And I, you know, ultimately I said thank you, but I quit and left. Which hurt him a lot. And uh, our relationship suffered quite a bit from that. But uh, yeah, it was it was interesting to sort of actually have someone explicitly offer you a million dollars for three years of your life. And it's not like three years I would have been in prison. It was three years I would have been making a sh you know, shit ton of money in midtown Manhattan and living in a rent-free apartment and, you know, 
I was the boss. I worked, you know, he owned the buildings and I worked, I ran the buildings. It was interesting, but it just never interest. It, I mean, it, in the, the situation was interesting, but the money wasn't interesting. And that power wasn't interesting. I had 25 people working for me when I was 25, you know, I've Weird. seen I've seen what happens when I make decisions that are not authentic to myself. My energy levels just drop. Yeah. I become a slob. I start smoking way too many right. joints. I eat way too much food. I swallow myself, and I'm just a, 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 I put on weight. Mm. I, I smother my. I've, I've witnessed the trajectory of my short little life in where I've made decisions, and yeah. the ones that I've made that have been really liberating. Body weight drops down. I start being energetic. I want to run. I want to have sex. Um, I meet people that are blowing my mind, um, enough money flows, everything works upon those decisions. But the ones that I make on the other side, meeting those guys, I was in Cairns and I became a concierge of a man's four-star hotel. He, he, he liked what he saw and I became his travel consultant and his concierge, making everyone feel good. It lasted five weeks. I was staying in the fancy apartment. Energy levels were just dropping he started to want to like make me still be that be- what I was before. Then he started telling me, you're not making as much money as I thought you were going to make for me. Um, so then he became apparent that he wasn't actually wanting me. He wanted the money I was going to make because he got forgot why he actually hired, hired me. Right. Um, and again, I didn't allow him to crucify me. I fucking left. Um, but just witnessing how power, power wants you when you're in your... Um, liberated free state but then as soon as they get you to to be what they want you to be then they don't want you anymore it's, yeah it's, i think a lot of uh, relationships are like that right like how many how many men are like yeah i want a woman who's like wild in bed right and then you meet the woman who's wild in bed and you're like i think you like this too much you're like this with other men aren't you you know you whore right lose respect for her or the opposite, women who want, I want a real man, I want a, I want a wolf. And as soon as they catch a wolf, they start training him to be a dog. And then they're like, well, you used to be a wolf, now you're just a dog, right? Like, we do that all the time. We, we destroy what we love, right? It's crazy. Where are we at? Uh, oh, we're over an hour. Uh, hour and 13. That's gone fast. I, I got to pack up yeah. here. Yeah, let, let, let's finish it up. We don't have to have a particular particular finishing let's just finish it in gratitude yeah right. I'm, re- I'm really grateful i'm glad we went in there because it was definitely like layers of like boundaries between us of us not going in there and i'm glad that we got some our own personal experience and mm. so we could fly in there i'm really excited to to to, to re- re-listen and feel the conversation yeah and really nice to get to know you a bit more yeah sorry we don't have more time that's a, like, we just had an hour and 30 minutes. You said 45. I did. That's timelessness for you. All right. Thank you, Chris. Yeah.